You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual You'll have to forgive me if I'm a little fuzzy-brained this morning. I've just gotten back to Seattle, back to Savage Lovecast HQ on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building in beautiful downtown Seattle, overlooking beautiful Puget Sound. And I'm a little fuzzy this morning because because marijuana is legal in Colorado. I don't know if you know that, but marijuana is legal. Recreational marijuana is legal there. And everyone in Colorado wanted to make sure I was aware of that fact and people kept giving me pot. And I kept having to say to them, you know, recreational marijuana is legal in Washington state where I come from too. You know, we legalized it at the exact same time you did in the exact same election. Washington state has sort of a Marsha, Marsha, Marsha problem with Colorado about marijuana decriminalization or the legalization of recreational marijuana. Because we literally did it November 2012, same election, same night, Washington State legalized recreational marijuana at the ballot box, the voters did. But Colorado, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha gets all the attention, all the national press about recreational marijuana. It was all about Colorado. And it was amazing how many people I met in Denver who didn't even know that marijuana was legal in Washington State. And legalized at the exact same time, recreational marijuana, legalized at the exact same time. These were the people, these are the potheads, the adorable, adorkable, some of them lovely potheads who kept giving me pot. And I didn't want to be rude. So I took their pot. And I put it to good use. So if you came to Hump in Denver this weekend at the beautiful Oriental Theater, you saw me introduce our porn festival in a compromised state, I was a little buzzed. I was a lot buzzed. I was completely fried at every show because at every show there was somebody in the audience giving me an edible or wanting to smoke me up. Not that I'm complaining. I had a great time. I'm just a little fuzzy-brained this morning. It's Monday and I have a sort of four-day pot hangover after visiting Denver. A quick aside, uh, when I introduce Hump, the porn festival, I run the audience through the rules. We have rules at Hump, no cell phones, no asshole remarks during the screening, no insults directed at other people's bodies or genders or whatever, and have fun. That's the most important rule of Hump. And then I mentioned quickly the rules for filmmakers, and one of the rules for filmmakers is no poo. I say you're going to see shit in our porn festival, and then I back up and say, actually, you're not going to see shit in our porn festival. There's no shit in our porn festival. You won't see a single speck of Santorum on my silver screen. Whenever I say that, once you see a speck of Santorum on my silver screen, the audience goes bananas. Everybody thinks that's hilarious. Everybody gets the reference. Everybody gets the joke. And everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about Santorum in the context of a porn festival. Speaking of Santorum in the context of an evangelical batshit right-wing blabathon rally, in Plano, Texas this weekend, Rick Santorum Gave a little speech and I, you know, Rick Santorum is running for president. I don't know if you know that. I don't think most people in the GOP base know that. When you look at Santorum's poll numbers, it doesn't seem anybody knows Rick Santorum is running for president besides Rick Santorum pulling at one or two percent, sometimes zero percent in most polls. Not going anywhere, Rick Santorum. And Rick Santorum and I have a long history. We are forever intertwined now. My old college roommate, Rick Santorum. But I haven't been writing about him or really talking about him much 
this time out. I figured the meanest thing I could do to Rick Santorum this time out is exactly what the GOP base is doing to Santorum, ignoring him. But he said this thing this weekend in Plano that I wanted to address. He said, they've taken my name, a name I am very proud of. They've taken my name and turned it into something that's beyond filth because I stood up for the institution of marriage in America. That's Rick Santorum's story, and he's sticking to it, that Savage Love Readers ruined his good name on Google because he opposed same-sex marriage. And that is a lie. That is a little, little turdlet of revisionist history. Savage Love Readers redefined Rick Santorum's last name because he said vile and disgusting things about same-sex couples who wished to marry. Rick Santorum in 2003 in this infamous interview with the AP compared same-sex couples who wished to marry to child rapists and dog fuckers, to active pedophiles and people who rape dogs. And that was a vile and disgusting and dehumanizing thing to say and it pissed people off. He threw the first punch and people responded with a punch back and landed a really good punch. I didn't come up with that new definition. It was a savage love reader that came up with that new definition. And my readers got to vote. There were numerous proposed new definitions for Santorum, and my readers chose that one. My readers, many of whom are lesbian and gay, who had been attacked in the most vile and disgusting way by this vile and disgusting man, slapped back, hit hard, and redefined his name to mean something appropriately and proportionately vile and disgusting. Not because he opposed same-sex marriage. Hillary Clinton opposed same-sex marriage back then. Bill Clinton opposed same-sex marriage back then. Barack Obama in 2008, when he was running for president, gave an interview in which he said that he opposed same-sex marriage because when a man and a woman marries, he as a Christian believe God is in the mix. Pretty offensive. Calls the question, who's in the mix when a dude marries a dude? Mr. Obama. And there was no effort to redefine Hillary Clinton's last name, Barack Obama's last name, Patty Murray's last name, John Kerry's last name, any of them for their opposition to same-sex marriage. Because their opposition was respectfully framed most of the time. Because in their opposition to same-sex marriage, they didn't argue that gay couples who wished to marry were just like dog fuckers and child rapists. So we engaged with Obama. We said evolve already. We didn't insult him. But to Rick Santorum, we said, fuck you. And we refused to be bullied. And we landed a punch. And he's still smarting about it to this day. All right, circling all the way back to Denver, where you can buy recreational marijuana. Unlike Seattle, where you can buy recreational marijuana, we recorded a live Savage Lovecast at Ophelia's Electric Soapbox in Denver. And we'll be sharing that with Savage Lovecast listeners in just a couple of weeks. Spoiler, I'm high and giving advice in Denver. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to have to wait a couple of weeks for us to edit it down and share it with you. All right. Coming up on today's Savage Lovecast, tons of your questions. And in the magnum, Molina Williams on BDSM, rape play, consent, and all sorts of other chewy issues on today's show. Hi, Dan. I was recently dating someone who broke up with me because she's uncomfortable with my relationship with my ex. The ex and I were each other's first true loves and dated for just over two years in our early 20s. It's almost 10 years later now, and we remain extremely close. We tell each other everything and even exchange I love yous from time to time. I spent a long time wondering if we were meant to be together because she's my favorite person in the world. 
but she doesn't have an interest in being any more than very close friends. I've mostly made my peace with this, and I understand that there are some very good reasons why we shouldn't be together, but I remain physically attracted to her all the same. I try not to tell new people I date about her immediately, favoring a slow rollout of information as we get to know each other. With this last girlfriend, I say girlfriend, but we dated casually for about three months. The more she learned about this relationship, the more uncomfortable she became. We were both a little drunk one night, and she asked me if I had the chance to sleep with the ex again, would I? I said yes, because I would. I love this girl, and she's beautiful. Why wouldn't I want to sleep with her? I realize now that the question was a bit unfair. Whether I would sleep with her again or not, she's A, not interested in sleeping with me, and B, if I was in a monogamous relationship with someone else, there are lots of people I wouldn't be allowed to sleep with, even if I wanted to. So my question is, how can I maintain this friendship while dating people who might be uncomfortable with it? Should I bring it up earlier in the dating process or downplay it entirely? And if anyone ever asked me if I'd have sex with my ex if given the chance, should I just lie next time? Relationships are not depositions. You do not have to answer every question truthfully. You are not under fucking oath. Now, in answer to your question, how can you maintain this friendship? And it's really not a friendship. It's more of a pine ship. You are pining for this woman. Of all the women in the world, including all the women that you're dating or have dated since this relationship, you prefer her, your ex, over everyone else. You are not really her ex. You are her boyfriend in waiting. You are the pretender to the boyfriend throne or something. And if I were your boyfriend and this was an ex-boyfriend that you were talking about, I would feel as secure as I am in the people I'm seeing having good and decent friendships with their exes, I would feel deeply insecure about your romantic attraction to your ex, your pining for your ex. You would like to be with her above all women. The only reason you are not with her is that she does not want to be with you. Now, that's something you can't really help. But it is something that you can shut the fuck up about. You want to be in a relationship with some woman It is going to be difficult for those women, all the other women in the world, the 3.5 billion other women in the world to be in a relationship with you if they feel like they are first runner up. There is no one, as I've said on the show a million times, there is no one. There's some 0.64 that you round the fuck up to one. Everyone is kind of a runner up really in our heads because there is the perfect boyfriend, the perfect husband, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect wife the perfect whatever that we have in our heads and everyone we meet falls short. No one is that perfect. No one is the one. We pretend someone is the one. We make them the one just as they are pretending we are the one. And someone can't feel like they're your one if you're telling them all the ways in which they're not. You don't rehearse for the lovely 0.64 that you've rounded up for one, the 0.36 that makes them not the fucking one, not totally the one, but for your active rounding up will. You let them think they're the one. You tell them they're the one and they know that they're not. But they appreciate the gesture of being allowed to think that they are. And this ex-girlfriend and your feelings for her and the intensity of your feelings for her, rehearsing that for any girl you're with now, even drunkenly and honestly, makes it impossible for her to Feel like, not she's the one, because if she's smart, she knows she ain't, but to feel like you've made her your one, that you're doing this for, you're rounding her the fuck up. 
So what do you do? You dial it back. You shut your fucking mouth. You don't tell the girl you're dating now everything she doesn't really need to know about your feelings for the girl you would be with if you could. That girl who isn't her. So yeah, in answer to your question, should you lie to your next girlfriend? Yeah, you should fucking lie to your next girlfriend. And you should spend, I think, a little less time with your er ex-girlfriend. You need to detach a bit from her emotionally before you can attach emotionally and sexually to someone else. Hi, I'm just calling because I have a question um, that's been kind of bothering me for a while. I'm a 19-year-old girl, and I've been dating a new guy for about uh, four months, and um, the sex is pretty good. It, it wasn't that great at first, but uh, we communicated, and we talked about what we wanted, and we really like each other, so we sort of changed what we were doing to suit each other, which is uh, really nice and sweet, but my issue is that um, I can't orgasm without a vibrator, specifically a Hitachi magic wand, which is enormous and plugs into the wall. And it feels like I'm using a Cuisinart or something. It's like an appliance. It's so loud and huge. And honestly, it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, the guy I've been seeing is really nice about it. And I mean, he's okay. He's a little bit weird about it, but it's okay. And I'm a little embarrassed about it. And I really just want to be able to orgasm from being eaten out or from having sex or being fingered or anything, but I can only orgasm from using the vibrator and I use it when we have sex, which is nice, but I just want to be able to finish without it. Uh, I feel abnormal and I feel weird and unsexy and I'm wondering if this is just something I have to live with. Google cordless Hitachi magic wand and you will find that there are cordless Hitachi magic wands out there. There are also all sorts of other very powerful perhaps not as powerful as the jackhammer of vibrators that is the Hitachi Magic Wand. There are also very powerful vibrators out there that are sleek and small and cordless. There are also vibrating cock rings that he can wear on his dick. That Hitachi Magic Wand that plugs into the wall that feels like an appliance, it feels like one of those dishwashers that used to roll into the middle of the kitchen and plug in to do your dishes. You have options beyond that particular vibrator. You might be one of those women who requires – that assist from a vibrator to climax. You can have a little experiment. You can do some science. You can science the shit out of your twat. I just saw the Martian. Forgive me. You can science this and stop using that vibrator and stop using any vibrators and just throw yourself physically into partnered sex and enjoy it and just tell yourself, if I don't come, I don't come. But I'm still going to enjoy this. I'm still going to loll about in the pleasure of all these physical sensations. I'm going to take pleasure in my capacity to give pleasure, my partner's pleasure, and we will make a good faith effort to engage me, to get me off. We're going to play with my clit during vaginal intercourse. He's going to go down on me. And once it passes the point of not quite frustration, maybe a little bit before that point, we will just stop and do something else or get up and have some ice cream and give it a few months, give it six months and see what happens. And no masturbating with the Hitachi Magic Wand in that time, only using your hands. And if new neural pathways are carved, if in desperation to climax, some new nerve is run up from your twat to your brain and it starts going, great. If not, you may have to accept that with most of your clitoral tissues buried deep within your body, which is the same for all women, you are one of those women who requires the deep, tissue sensation, body penetrating waves 
that only a vibrator can provide. And the trick then becomes how to elegantly incorporate into partnered sex the kind of stimulation that you need to come. And you should feel not at all embarrassed, not at all ashamed. You should feel what any guy would feel in your shoes, which is absolutely fucking entitled to whatever it takes for you to get off in that moment. A guy, if he needed a goat and a canoe in the room to get off, you would go to his bedroom for the very first time and there would be a fucking goat and a fucking canoe in the room. If you need a vibrator, have a vibrator. Have a few. Have a selection. Put it into his hands. Don't be ashamed. And get off. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old male here. I asked my girlfriend recently for just to talk about oral sex and giving blowjobs and uh, mentioned that I might like it if she gagged on my cock a little bit or uh, gave me like a nice sloppy blowjob. And she kind of got a little bit upset. And then ended up sending me a text saying that it feels, uh, you know, uh, there's a violent quality to gagging on a penis. And it feels like an endless metaphoric interpretation for gender, gender inequality. I'm wondering what is a tactful way to me for me to enter into uh, a conversation like this, uh, where really I just like getting a blowjob and like it nice and sloppy. That's fun for me. But... Um, she obviously sees it a different way, and uh, I'd like to be able to talk to her about this in a sensitive way. I'm a young man. I consider myself feminist. Um, I'm just, you know, wondering how to talk about this. So let me know. I like a nice sloppy blowjob myself. I also like to give a nice sloppy blowjob. So that nice sloppy blowjob, which could include gagging or reaching and stretching, for me is a two-way street. But a lot of women – quite rightly, perceive that nice, sloppy, gaggy blowjob as a big, fat, one-way street, straight women in relationships with straight men, where they are expected to do for and suffer for their guy in a way that he does not have to do and suffer for her. And there's something unattractive in a way about gagging and retching and snot coming out of your nose if it gets to that point and – you know, a big, wet, sloppy blowjob, you know, the kind of woman who doesn't want her boyfriend to know that she farts probably isn't going to want her boyfriend to look down and see her face in that condition either. It is on some level undignified. Uh, some people find that stripping away of dignity during sex and in that moment really hot. Including a lot of women will we'll get calls from women who find giving this kind of sloppy blowjob really hot and sexy. But there are women who getting their face fucked like that is not something that they can enjoy. And it sounds like you are dating one of those women where this isn't something that she wants to do or would enjoy doing. So it isn't, so long as you're with her, something that will be done for you. And I don't think that there's a tiptoe up to this sensitive way of talking about this that is going to convince her that this kind of blowjob isn't anything but kind of eroticized violence, kind of eroticized degradation. Somebody once asked me if coming on your face is, is sexy or degrading and my answer was yes. Yes, it is sexy and degrading. And some people find degradation in an erotic context that's consensual with a partner that they love and trust, very erotic. But some people don't find that kind of degradation eroticizable at all and can't go there, can't tap into that. And that's not because they're damaged or sexually repressed. It just doesn't work for them. 
And if it doesn't work for your girlfriend, it ain't going to happen for you. That said, there is an entire genre of online personal ad, including an entire genre of online pornography that is just straight guys going out there and finding a gay dude who will let them fuck their face and fuck their throat in a way that the wife or girlfriend or all the wives and girlfriends that they've ever had never would. I have friends who specialize and I'm talking about friends. This isn't I have a friend. This is literally friends who specialize in giving the blowjob to the straight married man that he has never been able to get in his entire life. Where these guys are so desperate for that one experience where they can just hold somebody by the ears and jam their fucking cock down somebody's throat that they can overcome their own sort of internalized homophobia. They can overcome their own, not internalized homophobia, their own erotic target preference. And have sex with a dude because they want to see what it's like to fuck a throat. They're out there. Who knows? Maybe your girlfriend would be fine with you seeking out one of those guys on occasion to get this kind of sloppy blowjob that you enjoy so much. But it seems clear you're not going to get this kind of sloppy blowjob from your girlfriend. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a Southern California bisexual 38-year-old married woman. I've been in a polyamorous relationship with my husband pretty much since we met uh, almost 20 years ago. My question, I guess, is regarding his family. We still interact with his mother because we have two children, and she is, of course, the grandmother of those children. And so we, you know, allow her to see them for Christmas and Easter and birthdays. She knows about my polyamory. Um, But for whatever reason, her son is not comfortable coming out to her about his own polyamory. At the moment, each of us has another partner. I have a boyfriend. He has a girlfriend. Um, And um, she disapproves of me being polyamorous. And what we were wondering is, should he come out to her that he is also polyamorous to show her that he supports me in that and that he's also someone like that? Or will that just leave her more in denial um, because she already doesn't believe in anything but monogamy? She doesn't believe anything non-monogamous is even allowable in a relationship. So I guess the question is, should he come out to her, you know, and risk incurring her wrath and having her disown him um, or continue to be abusive to both of us because she's been very abusive to me and my boyfriend uh, and been very, very abusive to my boyfriend um, or should we just kind of try to disinclude her from as much of our lives as we can. Your mother-in-law thinks you're cheating on her son. Your mother-in-law thinks that her darling son who would be monogamous, wants to be monogamous, is being wronged by you, his his slat-turnly, it's a hard word to say out loud, his slutty, sleazy, slat-turnly wife is running around on him and he consents to this and puts on a brave face and pretends that this is what he wants too. But in reality, his son is married to a terrible person who is dating a terrible person and her son, because they have children together and he is so besotted and in love and he can't stand up for himself that she has to stand up for him to her daughter-in-law and treat her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law's boyfriend like shit on behalf of her son who would treat them like shit if he wasn't so manipulated and blinded by love and abused. And now, because your husband is a coward who's afraid of his mommy, you two are contemplating 
ending your relationship with his mother, ending your children's relationship with their grandmother out of fear that she would react badly to the news that he too has a girlfriend, that he too is Polly, out of fear that she might reject him for also being Polly, you guys are going to preemptively reject her. And I think you guys have this all backwards, that once she knows that this is not some unequal agreement, once she knows that her son is not being taken advantage of, once she knows that this is mutual – she might not like it any more than she likes the fact that her son is in a non-monogamous relationship now, but she will no longer perceive this as some horrible wrong being done her son, that you're getting away with something that he isn't getting away with, that you have a, a freedom that he does not enjoy in the relationship. This to her seems manipulative and abusive and in reality, it's mutual and egalitarian. So you should risk coming out to mom about the fact that your husband also has a fucking girlfriend. And if I were you and I was in this situation and my mother-in-law was abusing me, I would be sorely tempted to out my fucking cowardly husband to his mommy about the fact that I am not the whore of goddamn Babylon and that this is not something, a relationship model that I have imposed on him and that I'm not cheating, that I am doing what I want and he is doing what he wants and luckily enough for the both of us, we both want the same things. And here, mother-in-law, I'd like to introduce you to your son's girlfriend. Not to be confused with your son's wife who's right here standing in front of you making the fucking introduction. Talk first to your husband though. Tell him that this charade has gone on a little too long. This allowing your mother-in-law, allowing his mother to think that – your polyamorous open relationship is some one-sided affair when it's actually no such fucking thing. And you are done being the ball guy, done being the villain in this morality play in your mother-in-law's head about her son's marriage. You're out and he's got to be out. You're not going to be his mother's punching bag any longer and he has got to start sticking up for you and sticking up for himself and stop being such a fucking coward. Yeah, mom might be mad at him for a change and he'll have to power through that. But you know what my hunch tells me? That once mom knows this, she's going to see you and your boyfriend in an entirely different light. Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old homosexual male. I wanted to ask you about parents and tolerance for homosexuality. I have never officially come out to my father I came out to my mother thinking that she would react with love and open arms because she's a hairdresser. And I always heard her talking about her gay friends from work and how they're funny and how they were, it, I don't know, she would just talk about them like they were any other person. So unfortunately, when I did come out to her, she cried and she didn't want to believe that I was gay. She told me that she was afraid I would get HIV or become oppressed by society. And I really feel like this experience of coming out to my mom caused me to be afraid to come out to anyone who's not homosexual. And more than likely, that's why I have never come out to my father. Um, recently, I, I never really had a reason to think about this, but I have seen this issue affecting my partner. I've been with him for about five years, 
and his family accepted me with open arms. They invite me to every family event. I have gone on countless vacations with him and his mother, and I always feel included when it comes to his family. Recently, my father invited me to go on vacation with him and my sister and completely avoided asking if my partner wanted to come. This caused my partner to feel left out and unimportant, and I feel horrible because it just didn't register that he would feel that way. Once I realized that this was the case, I thought of how this situation occurred, and I realized that my father is just tolerating my sexuality, and that's something I've never talked to him about. I don't know how to bring this up to him, and I feel I need to come out to him officially and tell him to include my partner when he wants to include me, but I just don't know where to start. In some small way, your predicament is similar to the previous caller's predicament. Uh, They were thinking about, she and her husband were thinking about rejecting his mother, her mother-in-law, out of fear that she might reject them or be even worse to them than she's already been. So they're going to cut her out of their lives rather than just being open with her and letting her do the cutting out if somebody's going to do the cutting out. And who knows? Maybe she won't cut out at all. Maybe she will get the fuck over it once she has the full story. Same thing here. You have, in a way, cut your self, parts of yourself, out of your family's life, cut your partner out of your family's life for fear that by coming all the way out to your family, by being yourself, by coming out to them officially, formally, and finally, they know you're gay, that they might reject you. So you have rejected chunks of yourself and you have rejected your boyfriend entirely in this area of your life, this relationship with your family of origin. And that's painful for your boyfriend because your boyfriend, he probably doesn't want to have a relationship. Probably just want to hang out with your parents if they hate him and hate you for being gay. But he wants to feel like you're the most important person in his life. And if you've been together five years, if you guys are thinking about marriage, if he is your partner, you should treat him like the most important person in your life. He should be the most important person in your life. Parents are going to drop fucking dead at some point of something or other. Maybe cold, stony hearts will finally kill them. And you will be left with him. And so you should really be demonstrating your allegiance to him, that he is your first priority emotionally and that his feelings are paramount to you. And this hurts him. This hurts him that you will not risk anything with your parents on his behalf hurts him. So stop playing this fucking game. Come out to your dad. Say, I'm gay. You know, I'm gay. Mom knows I'm gay. You know, I have a male partner that I've been with for a long time and we want to be treated like you would treat any of your other children's husbands or wives, girlfriends or boyfriends, romantic partners. And if you can't treat my boyfriend with respect and kindness and compassion and love, then you aren't treating me with respect, kindness, compassion, and love. And if you can't treat me that way, I don't really want to see much of you because I don't spend time with people who treat me like shit. And if you treat my boyfriend like shit, if you treat my husband or partner like shit, you're treating a part of me like shit. And I ain't going to put up with it. I wouldn't on this particular vacation put my foot down because you've allowed yourself to be manipulated by these people. And so they have continued to press that strategy. So you need to give them notice that this is over now, that you're out now and gay now, and they can take a year and in a year's time, holidays, family vacations, whatever it is, you're included as a couple or you will not be there. But give them a year. Give me a year to have their little tantrum now that you're officially and formally and fully out. 
And if in that time they don't get the fuck over it, hang out with your boyfriend and hang out with his family. Find people who can love you for who you are. And use that leverage. I'm repeating a lot of Savage Lovey maxims on this week's show. The leverage, the only leverage you have over your family of origin, your biological family, is your presence. And if your family can't treat you with respect, you have to use that lever. You have to absent yourself and tell them why. You want to see me? You have to treat me and my partner with respect. You can't do that. You're not going to see me. Period. The end. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. Families come around. Some only come around when they must. And up to this point, your family hasn't had to come around because you haven't pressed the case because you haven't insisted. You haven't stood up for yourself. And it's one thing to not stand up for ourselves, right? You can give yourself a pass when you don't stand up for yourself. It's another thing to watch the person who says that he loves you more than anything in the world fail to stand up for you. And that's what your boyfriend's been putting up with for five fucking years now. March in there and stand up for him. Even if you can't stand up for yourself, stand up for him or you risk losing him. Hi, Dan. I'm 20 years old and I'm a lesbian. And I came out to my parents about three months ago. And it was a bit of a disaster. It wasn't anything that I'd planned to do. I really wish I hadn't done it. Um, There was about two hours of my dad screaming at me all kinds of hurtful things like that. He always knew there'd been something off about me ever since then. They've kind of just been ignoring me. I live at home with them. I'm not in school. I can't afford to go to school, but I've been considering putting myself in crippling lifelong debt just so I have a chance to get away from them. They're uber religious and uber conservative and incredibly homophobic and the only times they've really spoken to me like really spoken to me over the past couple months have been when my mom has sat down to show me an article about a lesbian who met a pastor who fixed her and and has tried to talk to me about how this isn't forever and God can fix me and and I just can't take it anymore. I want to die, Dan. I really just want to be dead. I want all of this to be over with. But I'm too afraid that they're right. And that if I do, I'll go to hell. And I can't take this anymore. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm in therapy. I'm on meds for depression. I have a support group, but nothing makes me feel any better. I just got out of the support group and and it was awful. I just can't handle any of this. Hello. Hey, it's Dan Savage. Oh my God. Hi. Hi. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Good. You how s- are you? Good. You sound so much better right now than when you called and that is such a relief to me. Well, I actually just recently got out of the hospital. Oh my gosh. Uh, my therapist kind of sat me there because <laughs> I was not doing okay. How are you doing now? Better. And Definitely better. One quick question about your therapist. Is this someone that your parents picked for you or is this someone who's an affirming sex-positive, queer-positive therapist? 
No, she's wonderful. <laughs> Good. She's very wonderful. My advice, based on your call, go into mm-hmm. crippling fucking debt and get away from your horrible parents. <laughs> For as long as they're being horrible, get away from them. And I'm not saying your horrible parents are going to be horrible forever. Forever, Horrible right. is a choice. Your parents are choosing to be horrible. We can turn their horrible rhetoric about you choosing to be a lesbian back on them. They are choosing to be shitty and horrible to you. And so long as they choose to be shitty and horrible about you and so long as you have it in your power to get the fuck away from them, <laughs> get the fuck away from them. Better debt than dead if – Dealing with them day in, day out is filling you with such despair. Yeah. It's scary, but I'm I'm starting to feel like that's probably that's probably where I'm gonna have to go. And others have gone there before you. You know, we talk now about how much better it's gotten. I talk about how much better it's gotten for so many queer people, but individual results may vary. And your experience of the hostile, rejecting parents was so common. It was almost a universal gay, lesbian, bi experience 40, 50 years ago, right? And then people flew into those strong headwinds. People came out when families automatically rejected you, when rejection and hostility was what you expected, was all it was the best you could hope for was to be thrown out of the house and disowned. People came out and they risked being thrown out of the house and they risked being disowned. And many, 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 many of them, most of them who came out in the 60s and 70s, that's exactly what they got. But because they did it, they changed the world. And in many cases, their families came around. The same parents who were shitty and horrible and hostile when their kids came out. Years later, sometimes decades later, got the fuck over it. And if they didn't, their queer kid that they threw out, got out in the world, built a life for themselves, made new friends, created a new family for themselves, and didn't need their fucking parents in their lives anymore. And their parents didn't deserve to be in their lives anymore if they couldn't love and accept them. I think one of my biggest fears is that I'm never going to get rid of this shame that they've kind of instilled You will. You're only 20. You still live at home. It's like being in a fishbowl and feeling like I'm never not going to be wet, but you're in the fishbowl. Get the fuck out of the fishbowl and you'll probably dry off in time. And with the right kind of therapy and support groups and the right kind of brand new role models and peers, you you get out there in the world and live your life and you will meet other queers, other lesbians, other gay men with families Mm -hmm. who love and accept them. And you will see that, you know, some of the shitty, dirty thoughts that rattle around in your head, some of the shamey thoughts that rattle around in your head, they aren't objective, universal truths. They're bullshit. Right. They're bullshit. They're lies your parents told you about the world, about yourself, about higher powers that have a universe to run but are obsessed with what every individual hominid on the planet does with their genitals. (laughs) And it ain't true. But until you get the fuck out of the fishbowl, you're never going to feel like you're going to dry off. But get the fuck out of the fishbowl. Get out of the pool. I will. I'm sorry your family is failing failing you. I'm sorry your parents aren't capable of loving you right now. But you have to love yourself even if they can't. And that means taking care of yourself. And I hope I'm echoing things your therapist has said to you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Definitely. Even if you have to rent a room. From a friend of a friend, from someone in your support group, 
that's shitty and tiny and not as comfortable as home, just to be able to exhale in a space where you're not being judged and shamed, where you're not feeling like if you open the door and walk out of your room, you're going to encounter that kind of hate and hostility would be so freeing for you. Yeah. Yeah. And the trick, I, I say this to so many young queers who've been in your particular circumstance, the trick is you have to make your parents fear your rejection and stop worrying about theirs. Mm -hmm. That you're going to go out there into the world and you're going to live your life with or without them. And they can be part of your life on your terms or they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because right now your parents are controlling mm -hmm. you with their, with their rejection and their anger. And you have mm -hmm. to get to a point where it's you're rejecting them and you are angry at them for what they put you through and they have amends to make. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting ride. <laughs> you know, I have friends. I, I'm 50 fucking years old. I'm old. Right. <laughs> and I, you know, I had peers to 18, 19, 20 when I was 18, 19, 20, 30 years ago, whose parents threw him out, whose parents screamed and yelled, whose parents screamed and yelled about God at them and whose parents instilled mm -hmm. so much shame in them. And the mm -hmm. minute they left the house, they began to feel better. I would talk to them, we would hang out, and then they would get so depressed because they knew that they were going home to that, that that was where home was. Home was where all this condemnation and anger, disappointment and judgment was, that that's what they had to go home to every goddamn day, and it killed them. Every goddamn day, it killed them. And some of them wanted to die. Some of them said exactly what you said. I want to die. Every day I go home, I just want to fucking die. So this is over. And you know when it ends? It ends when you move the fuck out. That's when it ended. Because you don't have to go home to that anymore. So if you have it, with, <laughs> if you have it within your power to get the fuck out, even if it means couch surfing for months, even if it means some shitty job to scrape up the money to to buy into some house share somewhere, do it. Mm -hmm. Even if you have to take out a loan, mm -hmm. debt or death, I would choose debt. Yeah. That's the plan, I think, yeah. Do it. Do it. Don't wait. I will. And one of the tricks the mind plays on you when you're 20 years old and your cerebral cortex isn't fully formed <laughs> is you get into this space where you think it will always be thus. That the, 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 the way things are now, the place I'm in now, the way I feel now is the way I will feel forever, is the place I'm going to be in forever. And it's yeah. just not true. How many friends do you have who are 30? None. <laughs> okay, well, go make some and ask them what 20 was like and where they were at 20. <laughs> okay. And you're not going to hear, I'm in the same place, feeling the same way, hanging out with the same people, having the same conversations with my parents that I had at 20. Things are very different. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, they'll tell you things are much better. So this yeah. sturm and drang of emotions, this, this storm, it will pass. Just don't let it take you out. Before it does. Mm -hmm. I won't. But you can't be passive. I say it will pass, which makes it sound like it's just going to blow over its own accord. You have to do stuff. You have to make the changes. You have to shove the storm away. Yeah. You have siblings? Three. Are they on your side? Uh, <laughs> they're kinder, but still disapproving. Mm -hmm. When I came out to my parents, and it, it was the whole explosion and the shouting and yelling. The next day, I got a text from my brother who had been in the house at the time saying, 
I think mom and dad are handling this really poorly and I love you, but ultimately they're right. Yeah. And so that's kind of where they're at. They're trying to control you with their disapproval. As soon as they see that that doesn't work, that they cannot control you or destroy you with their disapproval, their disapproval becomes much less powerful and their attachment to it lessens. They'll lose mm-hmm. their grip on it. You know, parental disapproval when it comes to the, the young queer child, they're trying to either beat you to death or, or push you back into the closet. Yeah. And, and it's a weapon that they're, they're wielding against you, sort of a psychic weapon. And once they see that it's an ineffective one and only you can show that to them, there's no incentive for them to pick it up anymore. Once they realize it's futile, they're much yeah. less likely to continue to try to beat you with that imaginary stick. I definitely feel like I'm closer to, to really feeling like that. Like I have that kind of power. You have the power. You absolutely have the power. I'm not saying that what you've been through the last however many weeks or months it's been is your fault. They're being terrible. But mm-hmm. right now it continues in part because they, they can see that it's actually damaging you and get away from them. Remove yourself you have some money in the bank? A bit. <laughs> Do you have a job? Yes. Do you have friends? A few. Tell them where you're at. If they don't know how desperate the situation is, go to your friends and tell them exactly how desperate the situation is. Yeah. And that you have a big ask, which is I need a couch to surf on. I need a corner of your house to rent a room. I need to get mm-hmm. out or I'm going to, or I'm going to self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Ask for help and get the fuck away from your family. Re- okay. Reject them. What part of the country mm-hmm. do you live in? Michigan. Get the fuck out of Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend in St. Louis who's been saying the same thing. Is your friend in St. Louis willing to put you up for a while? Maybe. Get the fuck to St. Louis. It's an interesting place. It's a cool town. <laughs> it really is. That's what I've heard. Get out. You don't have to be their punching bag. You don't have to stay there. You're not nailed to the floor. Okay. I'm going to call you again. <laughs> I am. I'm going to call okay. you. I'm going to call you again in a month. We're going to make a note. We're going to call you in a month. Okay. I mean, four weeks is not a lot of time to, to get up and get out. I'm going to call you in a month just to check in on you, but I'm going to call you again in three months and I want you to be the fuck out of there. I will do my best. We're rooting for you. Thank you. Okay, take care. I'm glad you have a really good therapist who's on your side. Tell her I said thanks. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bye. Hi, Dan. My boyfriend of eight years is a dom. I had not had any experience with bondage before I met him, but I have always liked to be manhandled and fucked roughly, and I love the idea of my man doing with me as he pleases, which makes being a sub a good fit for me. I also love what it does to him, how much it turns him on, and I want him to be getting what he needs. Our sex, for the most part, is really wonderful and amazing, and he sees to it that I also get what I need. The thing I'm having trouble with is what I'm perceiving as technical awkwardness. I'm not into pain. I like being dominated, but I don't want the bondage to hurt. I don't like it when the ropes are tied too tight and my circulation is getting cut off or my knee is being hyperextended. 
when it goes like that and I have to say something to get him to fix it, it feels to me like I'm not in good hands, like I'm being manhandled by a man who isn't qualified, and that dampens my enthusiasm. I feel like if I'm going to be letting him do these things to me, he needs to be doing them with mastery. I try not to let it completely kill the moment, but sometimes it ends up feeling like this whole bondage thing is kind of a hassle. And this has led to us having not enough sex. So my questions are, how can I have a more positive attitude when things are awkward technically? How do I have confidence in him as a dom when he's not doing a super slick job of it? Am I just being a perfectionist? How can I muster more enthusiasm for a process that I'm mostly just tolerating because he needs it? How can I be a better sub? How can I be more GGG? Joining me by phone to help answer this call is Molina Williams. She blogs at molina.com. That's M-O-L-L-E-N-A.com. She is the co-author of the terrific book, Playing Well with Others, Your Field Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities. And she is in a full-time power exchange relationship. And I'm, if I'm correct, you recently got married. Isn't that true, Molina? I did, yes, yes. He liked it, so he put a ring on it. That was September 25th, so we're still super stoked about it. So now we are collared and married, just in case you missed the commitment part. Congratulations, <laughs> and I'm going to take a thank you. I'm going to take a moment here to say, in your face, all you anti-marriage sort of sex radical queer lefties who say that marriage isn't for kinksters <laughs> and marriage isn't for sex workers and marriage isn't for porn stars. I know so many kinky married people and kinky porn stars, and now Molina is among the kinky married numbers. Well, I feel like marriage really is for perverts. There's something deeply twisted about saying, yes, you and only you. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump on this call. So here's this woman. Uh, she's naturally, she, she's naturally, she's turned on. Natural might yeah, have yeah. to do with it. She's turned on by <laughs> men who take charge and being thrown around. And this guy is a dom and is into bondage and it all works for her. But there are these moments yeah. of technical awkwardness where what seems to be happening is they're just kind of yanking her out of subspace because she's having to yeah. correct him. She's having to communicate to him in the moment that he's doing it wrong. What's your advice for her? Well, the thing is, it, I don't know. She doesn't mention where on the learning curve he is. If he's someone who's been doing this for 20 years and he still doesn't have any proficiency, I would maybe suggest he steer his energies in another direction. Um, because by then you would figure t- at the time someone would pick up a few a few hints and skills. If he's fairly new, then obviously you know you want to be patient with the guy. You don't want to uh, get in his face and say no this and that move it the other thing. But to her point, when she's uncomfortable, if there's a loss of circulation, um, those are things that are actually risky. You know, I I actually have nerve damage from extended bondage stuff, and that's going to probably be with me for the rest of my life. So I'm very cautious about safety. Um, wherever they live, there are definitely classes that they can take if it's that he needs more technical proficiency. Um, the other thing is that sometimes bondage is freaking awkward. That's just how it goes. One of the big tricks that every instructor who does rope bondage I know says, first and foremost, 
blindfold your bottom. You put a <laughs> blindfold on them. They have no idea. You can be like all sensual, like, oh, yes, I'm correcting your flesh. While you're sitting there with a book open next to you on the bed as you're like checking for what not to do next. And the bondage as a sensory deprivation tool is also kind of sexy. And then the bottom the doesn't know what's going on. Then the person you're tying up can't see you fumbling with the ropes or trying to they work can't out see a you knot. Fumbling you know, exactly. And so you can blend in with your fumbling some other stuff. So you can mix it in with tickling. You can mix it in with a sensation play with dating. You can tell them erotic stories while you're figuring out where to put the next knot. So you don't have to be screwing up and fumbling in front of them. But bondage, as I understand it, yeah. there will have to be moments of communication. And actually, doesn't it place too, uh, an unfair burden on the top to say they have to be completely masterful at all moments, not make any mistakes, not require any feedback from the bottom around no, the placement and, of ropes? I think she gets that because she does say at one point, like, am I being a perfectionist? And perhaps she is. Because a lot of people have this illusion that everyone is this flawless bondage master who just swings out a ball of rope and suddenly they're perfectly wound above and below the person's actual muscles making them pop out erotically. And But that's not really true. Mm-hmm. Feedback is necessary. And feedback can be very sexy. You know, you can make it a game of is this too tight? Is this too loose? You know, harder, softer, whatever is happening in the moment. But she she seems to want him to know somehow intuitively that it's too tight or too loose. And the truth is when, you know, I've watched yeah. people do elaborate bondage scenes is that, you know, even the most kind of masterful tops that I've seen at public bondage events are constantly saying, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this too tight? They're constantly like drawing the bottom out because he doesn't have your nerve endings at his disposal, however masterful a top he is. (laughs) Now, if her expectation is that he's going to anticipate everything, then that's unreasonable. If her expectation is that he's not going to check in every 20 seconds because perhaps he's nervous or or he realizes his skill set isn't up there, then that can be jarring, you know? And and the, the fact of the matter is, if this erodes her confidence, it could be that it might be time for them to shift gears. Not all bondage has to be a half an hour shibari rope scene. It can be as simple as a belt that you wrap around someone's ankles and buckle, and now you're done. Anybody can do that. That's, that's as effective a, a, a mobilizing technique as anything else. I often say to people who are wanting to begin to experiment with bondage that people will be like, oh, I want to take it easy. I don't want to do anything hardcore. We're just going to use handcuffs and rope because restraints <laughs> look so scary. And it's actually yeah. restraints that are safer and the bondage Wait. and rope, you can get really seriously hurt if you're inept and you don't know what you're doing and you're putting them on someone or someone who doesn't know what they're doing is putting handcuffs and rope on you. You can really get hurt. It's those big, yeah. scary, buckling leather restraints that look so hardcore that are actually easier on the limbs and the nerve endings and safer. And a lot better. Like my, I, we actually had on our on our on our wedding list some restraints that we got on. We put on our Amazon list saying, <laughs> "Hey, if you like devices, which are called posy restraints, and they're specifically marketed for 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 medical purposes. They're to restrain patients who might flop around in their sleep or people who are otherwise difficult to manage. And the thing is, this they're designed specifically not to hurt people who are struggling." And they go on with one buckle. And, and my husband uh, feels weird to say that, but he is new to this. And so I don't want to give him a situation where he has to worry about um, a handcuff ratcheting down or not slipping. Mm-hmm. Keeping it simple and safe, you know, the medical stuff is awesome, is fantastic. And 
part of the thing about bondage is that you do have to trust the person who's applying it. And if his uncertainty or his lack of knowledge is making it so she doesn't feel relaxed and she doesn't feel that she can trust him, again, doing exercises that are that are less intense than, you know, the tying up and the bondage and everything else to lead back up to that, maybe just tying one wrist and having sex that way. But the, you know, um, a shift that some people who are new to bondage need to, to make in their heads is people have this expectation going in that they're going to be roped like a calf, that they'll be, you know, someone will <laughs> swing a lasso and tie them up against their will. And to be a bondage bottom, for a certain point, up to a certain point, you have to cooperate with the bondage top in getting your ass tied up. That that is, absolutely. That is something you're doing together, getting you tied up is... Uh, is something you're doing together. And then he can show his mastery. Once you're safely and comfortably and fully restrained, then he's free to do those things through mutual pre-agreement. He's free to do in that moment. But to expect sort of flawless bondage, he can either tie you up without communicating with you and he can hurt you or you're going to have to eat the hurt if he hurts you or you can communicate. It's one or the other and get safely tied up. Yeah, the communication is the most important thing. As far as the trust goes, I will tell you, one of the most erotic bondage scenes I ever did didn't involve any actual bondage. It was all psychological. The person I was bonding to took four pieces of chain and laid them across my ankles and wrists and said, if these chains fall off your ankles and wrists, the scene is over. And so I had to lay there as he was using the flogger, as he was doing the caning, as he was putting on nipple clamps, everything else. And I was the one who was managing the bondage. If I flicked my wrist and the chain fell off, the scene was over. So what you're saying specifically about it being, you know, a communication and about it being both people wanting this can be really underscored there. So trying something like that, doing something where the bondage is about the submission, right? Mm -hmm. And about giving yourself to that person versus technical ability might be a way for her to get back into a headspace that's more agreeable. Can you hang out for one more call? Absolutely. Hey, Dan. So I'm a 26-year-old girl from Alabama, and my question is this. I've been sleeping with this 39-year-old for over a year, and we've consistently had pretty chill sex but I did notice he didn't really have any specific sexual interests. My thing was, if at 39 you haven't developed some kind of fetish, something might be up. So I pressed. I told him I wanted to make him happy in bed and to do that he should be more upfront and communicate to me what turns him on. Well, he did, and it turns out he's super dominant and wants to explore BDSM tendencies. I was fine with it, but then it got a little intense. At one point during sex, he said he wanted to beat me to a bloody pulp, eat out of a dog bowl, and some piss flame might have been mentioned. I still have some pretty bad scars, actually. I fully try to respect everyone's sexual fetishes, but now it's starting to make me feel like he doesn't respect me or maybe any women. I consider myself a strong feminist, and even though I know strong feminists can enjoy being submissive, I'm starting to feel degraded. Oh, and I feel like he's on the cusp of bringing race play into the mix. I'm black and he's white, and I'm really uncomfortable about that. I would flat out end it, but outside of sex, he treats me with nothing but respect and is one of the greatest guys I've ever been with. I have a history of dealing with emotionally abusive relationships, and my concern is that even though I feel as if everything can be okay, should I be worried that continuing this will just end up leading me into a physically abusive relationship with BDSM as a bill to hide behind? 
right, the thing I want to dispense with right away, and I think you can speak to this uh, with more authority than I can, is can a man respect a woman and still want to make her eat out of a dog bowl? Yes. How does that work? <laughs> that is a simple question. The thing is that the core of BDSM and kink is consent. The core is I enthusiastically say yes to what I want to do, and you enthusiastically say yes to what you want to do to me. We're both in it to win it. Um, are there people who do not respect their partners who engage in BDSM? Of course, but there's nothing intrinsic in saying that what someone does sexually earns them a lack of respect, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people would feel the fact that you are able to voice your desires means that you are deserving of respect because it's tough to say, hey, you know what would turn me on? You eating out of a dog bowl, me beating the snot out of you, and you crawling around on the floor. We're not necessarily acculturated to that. So there's a lot that it takes to get people to the point where they're sharing those views and those opinions. I know many people who identify as feminists who struggle with this, and then ultimately, what is the point of being a feminist? It means that I am able to manifest the life that I want without the restrictions of someone deciding what my gender has to do with who I am in the world. So mm -hmm. absolutely, it's completely not just feasible, but it's necessary, I think, for someone to respect the person that they are going to be doing anything freaky with. And the respect has to go both ways. It's very easy to lose respect for someone who's a sadist, for example. And it's a question you have to ask whatever form your sexual expression in that relationship <laughs> takes. Does this person respect me? Even if they just want to have vanilla intercourse in the missionary yeah. position with the lights off, if there's no respect and there's no consent, crucially, it's probably not good and it's rape if there's no consent. Yeah. But if there's no respect, yeah. it's probably not coming from a healthier, good place, and you're not going to leave that sexual encounter feeling very good about yourself. It is trickier, no, no. though, you know, if somebody's into what has to be regarded as sort of eroticized disrespect, that yeah. it may call the question in a, in a way that makes you think more deeply about it. Now, this relationship she is in, this caller, she drew the guy out about his fantasies, not putting the blame on mm -hmm. her, and he finally shared them, and they're really kind of intense BDSM yeah. fantasies. Yep. And she likes him. She says she's been in abusive relationships in the past. This guy is aroused by abuse, by you know eroticized abuse and the, that that power imbalance, eroticized in a power exchange relationship or right, encounter. Right. And he's eroticized by that. And that may make this relationship too emotionally tricky for her because of her history with abuse. But here she's finally with a guy who treats her wonderfully, is very respectful, yeah. and isn't abusing her. And, and I guess her question is, can she keep – enjoying SM sex with this guy, if she is indeed enjoying it, without having to worry that he's going to, you know, escalate. downgrade or escalate from consensual yeah. BDSM to abuse. Yeah. The thing that I find interesting is that dude wasn't forthcoming with his kink and his fetish. Here's the thing. It might be because he was ashamed, embarrassed, wasn't sure if she would react well to it. Or it could be because it wasn't necessarily such a priority in his relationship with her that he felt the need to bring it there. Not all kinky people are as freaky with all partners all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that, that, you know, you can't put the rabbit back into the hat as far as this one goes, but that was my first question is, huh, I wonder if he didn't tell her because he didn't necessarily need to go there with her, but now rabbit's out of the hat. Here we go. Or maybe he told her this because she was trying to draw him out about kink and he thought, well, I, either I got to have something, not that he's making it up, but 
that, you know, he's like, well, right. she wants some kink from me. She keeps asking me it's, about my kinks. And so, you know, reluctantly or with some hesitation, here they are. Here are my kinks. Here's the things I've always kind of wanted to do. And they're a little dark and yeah. scary. And yeah, so so there's there's a lot of gaps there that, that, that we shall never know. But her past history as being involved in relationships that were abusive does not necessarily mean that this is a, a, a warning that she's obviously going to sink into the fiery pit of abuse because she's now involved with someone who does enjoy consensual kink relationships, right? Because a lot of people want to slap that label on us and say, clearly the reason that you seek out these relationships is because you're fucked up in the head, you have low self-esteem, you're you're you know you're reassigning your abuse triggers and all this other stuff. It could be true, but I have not seen and there's not been any evidence that we are any more likely to be involved in abusive relationships than anyone else. So in answer to her question, she shouldn't necessarily yeah. be worried, but she should be vigilant. No, but she should definitely be vigilant. Absolutely. I would say keep an extra eye out on that. If you know that this is a pattern for you, then perhaps this is something that you should pay more attention to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to degenerate into that. And by pay more attention to, typically we mean pay more attention to those those red flags, those early warning signs of an abusive personality. But BDSM is not one of those early warning signs. No. Especially, no. there's nothing to indicate that, that him saying, I want to do this with you, negotiating it, talking about it, him remaining within her limits, for example, um, is, is definitely 180 degrees from what abuse does. Abusers don't ask you what you like. They don't tell you what they want to do to you sexually. They don't share that with you with a desire to, uh, to arouse you and to titillate you. That's not their MO. That's not what's going to happen there. One thing I'd like to flag for her, though, or draw her attention to or or call attention to, I don't want to use flag again because we're talking about red flags of abuse. This is not necessarily a red flag of abuse. But the one thing I want to sort of put a marker on is she says during dirty talk, during sex, he said, I want to beat you to a bloody pulp. I want to make you eat out of a dog bowl. Um, If he was engaging in sort of feeling you out dirty talk and like sort of throwing some things out there that later on, when you have had a chance to discuss these things, when you're not in the moment, when you're not having sex. So he wasn't mm-hmm. attempting to, in the moment, get you to go places suddenly during sex without having sort of a calm and pants-on conversation about these other things that he might like to do for which he wants to get your consent before the scene begins. If he was trying to upgrade in that moment to these much more hardcore activities, that I think is concerning. And it could just be amateur hour concerns. Like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not educated enough about BDSM best practices to know that you don't do that. You know, if you've yeah. gotten somebody to consent to A, B, and C during the scene, you don't say, Hey, you know what might be fun? M, L, N, and P too. You talk about that before the scene. Right. 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 And so, you know, she knows how that went down. She knows how that act went down. She knows how that uh, event went down. If he was attempting to get you to do those things in the moment, yeah, you might want to dial this way the fuck back. You might want to get some books, including Molina's books, and, and learn more about BDSM. And he might need to learn more about BDSM. But if he was just dirty talking in the moment to sort of feel you out, to see what turned you on, what didn't turn you on. And if you said, you can't talk about beating me to a bloody pulp, I've been in a relationship where that sort of thing happened non-consensually. And that's not something that's sexy for me at all. And then if he dropped it, that's a good sign. Yes. Yeah. It, it is important to make that differentiation because having an extreme fantasy is one thing, up to and including, and she did mention 
and I don't want to, I don't want this to fall by the wayside that she has a suspicion that this is going to veer into racial stuff, Mm -hmm. which is outside of her comfort zone. Talking about those things is fine and great. And I encourage that actually amassing them is another thing. And if it does come to a point where he does bring that up and you and she says, you know what? Not okay, man at all ever. His response absolutely 100% has to be, I understand. Thank you for letting me know that is off the table. Um, if it becomes coercive and he starts to push it, then that's not okay. Uh, because as, as, as people of color, us being involved in a situation where we are giving up our power, adding to that the racial dimension is huge. And it's advanced 301 level graduate stuff. And if you are not enthusiastically willing to do it and you don't see it as something empowering, as in something that you are reclaiming, something that you are shifting. I, you know, when I talk about this in lectures, I say, absolutely, don't even freaking don't put a toe on that path because it's really difficult. But for her, I think what's critical is if she feels like everything in their relationship is awesome, except this one thing, don't assume that the one thing is the smallest thing. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes the one thing becomes the pivot upon which everything shifts. So you got to keep an eye on that. Do you think at a fundamental bedrock level that these two, the caller and the guy she's seeing, are sexually compatible? If his BDSM kinks are this extreme and they involve, you know, hardcore S&M beatings and perhaps even race play and S&M isn't anything that she really has an intrinsic interest in herself. It's not her kink. She's willing to be GGG and perhaps and go there for him. But if that's where he wants to live, not just visit – should they even be together? That's the, that is the main question. If it is some place he wants to visit, and I, I suspect it might be for him, a thing that he really enjoys, even even to a hardcore extent, fantasizing about, but maybe he's okay with, within these within these limits. At that point, it's fine. If these hardcore desires that he has expressed are things that he feels compelled to do. I would say actually to him, as I was speaking to him, you should probably find someone with a little bit more enthusiasm for this because it's not going to feel good for you either. No one benefits in a relationship where one partner is being dragged along, even sort of kind of, you know, feeling GGG about it because later down the road, it's not going to get any easier. It always becomes uh, trickier. We're talk- um, that's just something that I've always observed. And we're talking to the caller primarily. It wasn't the, the kinky guy who called us. And to the caller, I think we would both say, watch out for your own sense of safety and mental health and physical uh, well-being. Put that first and foremost. You come first in this yes, relationship. Absolutely. In all your relationships, you should put yourself first. And if this isn't working for you, however nice a guy he is, even though you asked and asked and asked him to share this with you, you can end the relationship for your own sense of safety, security, and you don't have to, you know, there's no finger pointing at him when you end the relationship, not accusing him of being an abuser. You're just not sexually compatible. And the other thing is that it can often feel very, very amazing when someone treats you far better than anyone else has previously, but it doesn't mean no one past them will treat you even with, 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 with more superlative kid glove, love, respect, and understanding. So this might not be the be all and end all for you if you decide that it doesn't feel safe and your heart doesn't feel comfortable in this particular situation. But what you can take away from this relationship if you end it is this sense of what it is like to be well treated by someone. He has treated mm-hmm. you well. 
And so look for those same qualities in your next partner if he's not the right partner for you because the sex thing doesn't work. Exactly. Molina Williams. Check out her blog at Molina.com. Check out her book. It's terrific. I recommend it to everybody who's curious about getting into the kink community, playing well with others. And once again, Molina, congratulations on landing your husband. I got my husband. You got your husband. We're all set up. <laughs> We're all married up. Who would have thought? <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a 21-year-old female calling you from Barcelona, Spain. I have a question about a weird interaction that I had yesterday with a friend of mine. Um, so here's the backstory. I'm living here in Spain, and I've been going to a certain tattoo shop for a couple of months. I'm really interested in becoming a tattoo artist, and I've been making friends there, and I got a couple piercings, and I showed um, one of the guys who works there my artwork, and he said that if I stick around, he would be able to offer me an internship um, or an apprenticeship to become a tattoo artist in the next couple of months. Um, so I was really happy. I gave him my number, and we've been texting on and off for about a week. Um, we flirted a little bit. I'm attracted to him, and I think that was obvious when we hung out at the shop, but it was nothing big or serious, and we were both, you know, keeping it professional. Um, but yesterday, he texted me, and he said that he, he thought I was so pretty, and he just wanted to tell me that, and he sent me a PG-13 shirt off selfie, and I sent him a dressed but cute selfie back, and I was like, yeah, you're, you know, you're cute too, because <laughs> he is, but I'm trying to stay on that line of professionalism. <laughs> anyway, a couple hours later, he said, said, I have a proposal for you. Can I text you and ask you? And I said, yeah, sure. So um, he said, I know you've been wanting to get your nipples pierced, and I've been wanting for a long time to pierce someone while I am having sex with them. He said that was his fantasy and that he's been waiting to fulfill it for many years and he wants me to help him fulfill that fantasy. Um, <laughs> um, we've never been on a date. We've never kissed. We've never nothing. So he, he basically he was suggesting that we meet in a hotel next week <laughs> and he will pierce both of my nipples while we're having sex. The other weird thing, though, is that he said that he wanted to do an exchange, but then he mentioned that I would be paying for the hotel, which is, I mean, it's not expensive, but that kind of makes it makes it feel even weirder that there's this like weird money exchange, and I don't, I don't know. Basically, I'm really confused. <laughs> I don't know what to reply. I haven't replied yet. Um, I don't know if this is going to ruin my chances of ever getting an apprenticeship in that that shop. I mean, this kind of, do you think this ruins my chances of having a professional relationship with him at all? I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to say. So he wants to pierce someone while he's fucking her and you want an internship in his shop. So there's something you both want from each other. And the question is, I think your question is, will he come through with the internship if you pay for the hotel room and fulfill his fantasy? And I don't know the answer to that question. But clearly the internship or the apprenticeship that he's offering is contingent upon you putting out. Otherwise, he would just offer you the apprenticeship and then mention, because you guys have a flirty, sexy relationship in passing, that 
in making a pass that he would also like to get with you as well as have you as an apprentice. He'd love to have you as his sex partner, but one isn't contingent upon the other. But clearly in this circumstance, one is contingent upon the other. And there's no guarantee that if you fuck him, he's going to give you the internship. You're probably being played and you've already crossed that line, that magical, invisible, sometimes amorphous line between professional and non-professional when he sent you the dirty shirtless picture and you sent him the flirty picture back. You're already not having a professional relationship. It is kind of sexualized. The question you have to ask yourself is are you willing to barter your ass for the internship that you want? And will he come through with that internship and will it be tolerable? Who knows? Maybe he – after you pay for that hotel room because you don't have a, an apartment or a bedroom and he doesn't have an apartment or a bedroom and you can't just use the shop after hours because you guys live on the streets and it's an open-air tattoo shop apparently. Once you pay for that hotel room and you fulfill his fantasy, what guarantee do you have that the internship shall be forthcoming? You have no guarantee and who knows? Maybe this is a line he's used on a whole string of American girls who have dreams of being tattoo artists. Depending on what you're willing to do, depending on whether you're willing to barter a bit with your ass to fulfill your dreams, you should go and talk to him and say, I want to fuck you too, but I want an internship more. As soon as I'm your intern, we can fucking fulfill that fantasy. You're trying to leverage sex out of me by dangling the internship and tell you what, I'm going to dangle sex to leverage the internship I want out of you. So we're both manipulating each other and using each other. That could be sexy and hot. People have commodified relationships. People have relationships that involve the exchange of goods and services and genitals that are functional and healthy. We have plenty of sex workers on this show talking about sex work, the way it ought to work, consensual, healthy, willing. But on some level, you are bartering. You are offering your ass. You are offering to fulfill this fantasy that he has of fucking someone while he pierces them to him in exchange for what you want, which is an internship in his shop. If not with him, then with somebody else in the shop. But there's something you want. There's something he wants. You guys can cut a deal. If that seems unprofessional to you, and indeed it is unprofessional, find another tattoo shop. Find another way into this industry. Hi, Dan. I just listened to episode 468 and – I kind of agree with you, and yet I don't with the gentleman who was best friends with a girl for a very long time, and now he has a girlfriend. Uh, the whole entire point of a wedding, last I checked, plus one, is supposed to be romantic. Uh, he says this is a double standard, and yet I'm not going to go, a guy's probably not going to go bring his bro to the wedding. And so I feel that he needs to take this a couple steps back, honestly. I think that even if this partner leaves, the next one's going to have the same issues. This is not just a one-time thing. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the question on this week's show um, where the guy was having a girlfriend with insecurities about his long-term friendship. And I think your answer was great, but one thing you missed is that maybe part of what's bothering her is just that the friendship is being projected all over social media all the time and I know for me the lot of being in a relationship is kind of that public aspect of it and she might just be feeling insecure about what everyone else is thinking about this friendship when really she might have less of a problem with it if it weren't 
so publicly we project it all the time. So another idea might be for him to ask his friends to not post a picture every time they go hang out. Hi, I'm calling in regards to episode 468. My word of advice is definitely just hang out all together. I wouldn't feel that great if my boyfriend was hanging out with a girl all the time that wasn't me without me. So uh, yeah, just get together, get them to know each other, be friends. It's super simple. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Molina Williams on Twitter at Molina. That's M-O-L-L-E-N-A. Hump. Seattle and Portland's biggest, best, oldest, and only amateur porn film festival is coming up in November. Tickets are on sale now. Hump always sells out in Seattle and Portland. Don't miss out. Go to humptour.com to get your tickets for screenings in Seattle and Portland and Olympia, too. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thank you.